You are listening to the sermon podcast of Connection Church, a gospel-centered community on a mission to make much of Jesus in Sioux Falls, South Dakota. For more information, visit SiouxFallsConnection.com. Thank you for listening. Um, I want to welcome Steve up. Uh, Steve is going to preach this morning. Um, I, I feel okay saying this. The Our church wouldn't be where it's at if it wasn't for the prayers, for the wisdom, and for the care that Pastor Steve has provided in our midst. Um, so I've been super encouraged by him and his presence, and I know that um, you guys will be as well this morning. Hey, Steve. Well, it's good to see you all this morning. Uh, every time I'm here, I feel like I'm coming home. Uh, have so many friends here, so many acquaintances, and it's just good to be here, and it's just been good all the years to see uh, all of God's good work here. And when I say that, I mean you all. Uh, so many good things, so many blessings uh, of God uh, through the life of, of Connection Church. Uh, I'm here because Ryan Johnston couldn't be, <clears throat> so you're, you've, you've come in just a little bit under the radar. Uh, Ryan's one of my favorite people. In fact, if I'd known he was going to be here, I might have been here anyway, uh, and so I, I hope that he can come back another time because you, you'll be blessed by Ryan, uh, the opportunity to meet him, opportunity to hear him preach, and, uh, and I hope, hope that he can come back sometime. Well, today... Uh, I am here with a very specific purpose. My purpose today is to leave you utterly convinced that it is good to be near God. Now, you might say, well, Pastor Steve, that's a pretty easy goal you've set for yourself. And I would suggest to you that maybe not as much as you think. Because you see, this world is filled with all kinds of things that cause us to doubt whether it's good to be near God. We are constantly battling uh, desires that say, this is what is good, versus God saying, no, this is what is good. And we have to decide, are we going to go halfway with God and dabble in some other things that we think will give us satisfaction and fulfillment in life? Or are we going to go all the way with Him? And my goal today is that you will walk away from here completely convinced that it's, there's no other way to go than to go all the way with God. That it's very good to be near Him, and the farther away you get from Him, the less good it is. We're going to look at Psalm 73. Psalm 73, I'll give you a minute to, to turn there. Uh, and the first thing we're going to see in Psalm 73 is that it's a psalm of Asaph. That's a little bit unique. Most of the psalms were written by David. This one is a psalm of Asaph. And it's really important to know who Asaph is because of the nature of the psalm. This is a, a very personal testimony of an individual. So who was Asaph? Well, Asaph was uh, chief among the men that King David appointed to lead worship in song after the Ark of the Covenant was restored to the tabernacle uh, after some uh, difficulties uh, before David came into power as king. He was the chief of the worship leaders. And Hezekiah, the 14th king of Judah, uh, the southern kingdom after David, was so impressed with uh, Asaph that he told the Levites to sing praises to the Lord with the words of David and of Asaph, the seer. 
our prophet. So he put Asaph's words uh, at the same level of significance as David's when it comes to words that will help us to worship God. And it's significant that we know this about him, that, that he was a prominent leader, because he's a prominent leader who shares a very humble confession of his struggle with doubt about the goodness of God. So this was not just some average Joe like you or me. This was somebody that God had filled with his spirit and brought to a place of prominence. There's no doubt that David would never have appointed Asaph where he did unless he could see in him uh, a great love for God, a great uh, faith in God, yet he also struggled with doubts about the goodness of God. And he puts it into words here for all of us to see. He knew when he wrote this psalm that the purpose of this psalm would be to be sung by all the people of Israel. Why? So that they could learn from his struggles. It's also significant for me because there was a time in my life several years ago where I was having some pretty significant doubts about uh, the goodness of God and about his ability to communicate to me and show me the way that I should go. And I was struggling um, in, in really in, the, in some real depths of despair. And God, in his mercy and grace, led me to Psalm 73, and it uh, just spoke to my soul. And so I'm very happy to share it as well, because like Asaph, I am uh, someone that God, in his Wisdom and mercy and grace has made me a leader among God's people, uh, but that does not make me uh, not vulnerable to all the same things that all of us struggle with. So let's read this psalm together. The way that I want to approach it today is we're just going to read it a little bit at a time and, and just talk about the meaning of it because um, this is not a, a, a didactic passage so much as a personal testimony. And I want us to just kind of break it down as we go along. So Asaph begins in verse 1 by saying, Truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. This is a foundational truth to all of God's people. When he says that surely God is good to Israel, you can uh, feel free, I believe, to substitute Israel to God's people and include all of us who uh, may not be descendants of Israel but, but are made to be part of Israel, part of God's people through faith in Jesus Christ. This is a foundational truth. It's, an, it's axiomatic. And what that means, what I mean by that, is that this is a truth that is uh, considered to be understood, and, and there are no conditions under which it is not true that God is good to his people. And then he goes on to say, to those who are pure in heart. And you could read that and say, well, does that mean that he's only good to God's people who are pure in heart? Because if that's the case, then there's a lot of times that I can't be sure that he's good to me because I'm not always pure in heart. But I don't think that's what Asaph means because he's going to spend the rest of the psalm talking about a time in which his heart became embittered toward God. And God was still good to him. That's going to be the whole point of the psalm, was that God was still good to him in the midst of that. 
you've probably, I know you've been going through Matthew, uh, Matthew's gospel, and I think you've already gotten through chapter 5. Is that right, Jonathan? And so if you might, you might remember chapter 5, verse 8, that says, uh, Blessed are the pure in heart. Why? For they shall see God. And so I think the issue here uh, for the pure in heart uh, is not so much that it's a conditional statement that says God's only good to, to his people who are pure in heart. It's more a fact that God is always good to his people, but it's only the pure in heart who are able to see it clearly. And you see, as we let impurities into our heart, our vision of God, our view of God becomes corrupted. And we begin to have doubts. And that's what he says in verse 2. He says, But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled, my steps had nearly slipped. My feet had almost stumbled, my steps had nearly slipped. He understood the gravity of what he was dealing with here. This doubt that he had about God was not some doubt about a small thing. It was a doubt about what I would say is arguably the greatest thing. Think about it. Foundational to all of our faith in Jesus Christ, foundational to us understanding the significance of his death on the cross for us, foundational to all of that is the idea that God is good to his people. I mean, think about it. If we can't be certain that God is good... Can we be certain that the cross was good for us? One of the most important things, the foundational truths of our faith, is that God is good. In Romans 2.4 it says that, that um, it's the kindness of God that leads us to repentance. It's not the holiness of God. The holiness of God is very significant. It's not the righteousness of God. It's not uh, the judgment of God that leads us to repentance. No, it's the kindness of God that leads us to repentance. Think about it. If you became thoroughly aware of your sin and thoroughly aware of God's holiness and the great chasm between His holiness and your sin, and you did not know that He was good, would you run to Him? No, you'd run away from Him. And that's exactly what Jesus describes in John chapter 3. In John chapter 3, the, beginning with the verse that we're all so familiar with, John 3, 16, it says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment. This is the part I wanted you to hear. This is the judgment. The light has come into the world, talking about Jesus, and people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come into the light, lest his works should be exposed." But whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. Do you hear what Jesus is saying? What he's saying is that the goodness of God uh, expressed in the light of Jesus Christ, you know, Romans 5.8 tells, tells us that God demonstrated his own love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. 
So Jesus came into the world as an act of God's love, the supreme act of God's love toward his people. And so Jesus describes that as light coming into the world, but he says there's a problem, that people love darkness. Why? Because they understand the righteousness of God, the holiness of God, and their own sinfulness, and they don't trust his goodness. And if you don't trust his goodness, if you don't have that foundational axiomatic truth in the heart of all of who you are, then you're going to be inclined to run away from him, not run toward him. It's his goodness that leads us to repentance, to turning from our way toward him to follow him in his way. And so because of that, Asaph says, my feet had almost stumbled... My steps had nearly slipped. And then he explains, For I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. Have you ever been there? Envious of godless people who are prospering? It's hard not to. And I would say, if you were to say to me, no, Pastor Steve, I don't envy them, I despise them, I would say that's just a form of envy. You should pity them, not despise them. But I would also venture to say that the truth that we're going to hear today in, in Psalm 73 is not limited to just the issue of envying the, envying the arrogant because the wicked prosper. I would say you can apply it to any struggle you might have of desiring anything in this world for, and fearing that God doesn't want it for you. Any contrast between what you believe God wants for you and what you want for yourself, any conflict there, take that and apply that to what we're going to learn today. Now from here, in the following verses, Asaph just goes into detail describing his perspective on the wicked who were prospering. And I want to point out here that all of this stuff is not necessarily true. Because he's describing the perspective that he had when his view was obscured because he quit trusting in the goodness of God. He said, they have no pangs until death, verse 4, their bodies are fat and sleek. And fat is not a um, a derogatory comment in this this, uh, culture because in this culture there weren't very many people who were overweight because you had to have enough food to be overweight and not very many people did. And so fat was something that was seen to signify that you were well off. And so it's something he's envying about them. They are not in trouble as others are. They are not stricken like the rest of mankind. Therefore, pride is their necklace. Violence covers them as a garment. Their eyes swell out through fatness. Their hearts overflow with follies. They scoff and speak with malice. Loftily, they threaten oppression. They set their mouths against the heavens and their tongue struts through the earth. Is all of that true? Uh, Not necessarily. They are not stricken like the rest of mankind. I would say that they are stricken just in a different way. Sin affects everybody in the world. It doesn't know any socioeconomic boundaries. 
It affects everybody. The, the pain, the sorrow, the suffering of sin that sin causes in this world affects everyone. But from Asaph's obscured perspective, he just sees the good things that they have. And I want to point out that that's part of the problem that we have whenever we begin to dabble in things where we're seeking after something that's not, we're not seeking after God for it, we're just seeking after it on our own. So we've identified some other source of satisfaction, some other source of fulfillment for ourselves other than God. When you begin to seek after that, you're not going to see everything clearly. You're going to see what you want to see and not all that is there. You're not going to necessarily see the truth. Verse 10 says, therefore, his people turn back to them. God's people turn back to them and find no fault in them. And I think here maybe, I don't know this for sure, but I kind of get the idea that here Asaph is talking about how it is that he first began to, to dabble in this stuff. He saw other people of God uh, envying the, the wicked and, and in their prosperity, and, and that's what kind of dragged him into it as well. And he says, and they say, how can God know? Is there knowledge in the Most High? And so where does it lead? Well, when he began to desire something other than God, or good things through, through some other source other than God, then immediately it caused him to doubt, is God really good? And does he know all things? Can I trust him? Verse 12, he sums it up. Behold, these are the wicked, always at ease, they increase in riches. Then he draws another conclusion that is equally flawed. All in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. For all the day long I've been stricken and rebuked every morning. There's a couple of things I want us to see in what he says here. First of all, I think this is an indication that Asaph, especially being the, the on-display leader that he was, he hadn't taken any action toward the things that he was desiring and envying in the, the wicked that were prospering. It was all going on in his heart, right? Uh, he says, in vain have I kept my life clean. So he had kept his life clean. He's just upset about it because he thinks it's all meaningless, because as he's done that, he sees people who have not kept their lives clean, who have not tried to follow God, who are prospering. <clears throat> so you don't have to be actively pursuing something that's different than God to be struggling with these things. It can be something that's only going on in your heart and your mind. And then in verse 15 he says, If I had said I will speak thus, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. And here is where the weight of being a leader among God's people has come to bear on him. He's saying, this is what I'm thinking. This is the perspective that has been growing in me. But I know I can't say this to God's people or I would betray them. Do you hear the conflict going on in him? So this envy was not 
leading him to a place of better life, it was rotting his bones. It was killing him from the inside out. Then we see the transition. He says in verse 16, But when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task until, until I went into the sanctuary of God. Then I discerned their end. Until I went into the sanctuary of God. You hear what he's saying? What he's saying is that as I was seeing the things that I was seeing that didn't jive with what I believed about God, and I was filled with conflict, I was being eaten away from the inside out, he said, I tried to understand it, and it was a wearisome, weighty task. I could not do it until I did what? Until I returned to God. Until I entered the sanctuary of God, the safe place of God, the holy place of God. Until I entered into that, I couldn't understand it all. And what made the difference? Well, in this case, what made the difference was an eternal perspective. And I would suggest to you that often what makes the difference for us is an eternal perspective. That's why Jesus came preaching, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. There's an eternal perspective there that changes everything. You know, in recent years, um, my wife and I uh, had the, the privilege of, of being with her mother as she um, came through her last days of life. She died be a year ago next Sunday. Um, she was uh, well into her 90s, lived a good long life. But in struggling through uh, the degradation of her mind and her body and spending a lot of time in the nursing home in Vermilion, it was like a light went on for me. I saw in all these people, and it changed, you know, I preach at the nursing home uh, on a rotational basis, and it totally changed the way I preach. I, I only preach one thing there now. It's not the same passage every time, but the point is the same every time. I just tell them about heaven. I tell them about eternal life, because when I look out at them, what I see is a whole bunch of people who've spent their whole life having the things that we think will make us happy and have a fulfilling life, and they're all going away. If they have any nest egg, it's going away at the tune of about $9,000 a month. goes away pretty quickly that way. If they had family, their family is probably off doing other things. And that's one of the things that I noticed as we spent time in the nursing home is that most of the people there didn't have visitors. The only people they saw every day were the people who were paid to take care of them. And so all the things that we put hope in in this life are, are dwindling away for them. And if I want to talk to them about goodness, the goodness of God in this life, it's not going to be very meaningful to them. They need to hear the perspective of eternal life. That, that when, when, when we see all of eternity as God has revealed it to us, as much as he has revealed it to us, it changes the perspective of everything. When you know that God has promised 
for his people that he's going to bring us to a place where sin is completely removed and all the suffering and sorrow and pain and death that go with it, he's going to wipe away every tear from our eyes, then our understanding of what suffering is will change. We live in a culture where we think we're suffering if gas, gas prices go over $4 a gallon. I just saw on social media some guy talking about the good heart of his son who, and I assumed it was a little son, who said that he wanted to get a job so he could help his parents pay for gas. And that's a really sweet thing. But I want to say, do you really want to give your children the perspective that high gas prices mean that, that you're not going to be able to eat? Because there are not very many people in our country who aren't able to pay over $4 a gallon for gas and still feed their family just fine. Paying high gas prices is a bummer, but it's not suffering. It changes the perspective when we know where we're headed. I figure I can put up with just about anything if I know that the end is always the same, no matter what is happening in the moment. None of the things that might happen to me in this world will ever change the truth of where for all eternity I will be and what I will be experiencing. Nothing will change that. And you see, we need that eternal perspective to understand, to fully understand the goodness of God. You can't understand it if you don't add the eternal perspective. And so he says, until I went into the sanctuary of God, then I discerned their end. He goes on to describe it. He says, truly you set them in slippery places. You make them fall to ruin. How they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors, like a dream when one awakes. O oh Lord, when you rouse yourself, you despise them as phantoms. Now, I don't think this is Asaph uh, delighting in their demise. I think it's him being reminded, oh, yeah, they might be having good things now, but for all eternity, they don't have that to look forward to. So why would I ever envy them? It's foolish to envy those who will spend eternity in separation from God and suffering in hell. That's why I said we should pity them, not envy them, or despise them. And that pity should cause us to pray for them and to use every opportunity we can to give them that eternal perspective in the promises of God in Jesus Christ. Then in verse 21, 22, here's his real confession. He says, when my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in heart, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast toward you. When we let ourselves be carried away with doubt, it might seem like a smart thing. And I would say it is a good thing to test the promises of God. But we're not being wise when we dabble in things apart from God. We're being foolish and ignorant, brutish and ignorant. 
like dumb animals before God. But then he also confesses what he knows about the goodness of God. And listen to this. Nevertheless, I'm continually with you. Do you hear the contrast there? He says, my soul was embittered, I was pricked in heart, and I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast toward you. And what was God's response? Nevertheless, I am continually with you. He recognized that as he was struggling as he was, that God didn't leave him. And this is one of the reasons I say that, that Asaph, Asaph in the first verse is not saying that God is only good to his people who are pure in heart. Because he recognizes here that God was good to him even when, he was, when his soul was embittered and his heart was pricked. Nevertheless, I'm continually with you. And this is true for all of us. Whatever you might be struggling with today or have been for the last days or weeks or months, one thing is true, that God is good and he is continually with you. As you wander from him, he doesn't get farther away. You just turn your back on him so you don't see him, but he's always nearby. You're always with him. He says, you hold my right hand, you guide me with your counsel, and afterward you will receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Do you hear his deepened understanding of the goodness of God? As he struggled and his heart was his soul was embittered and his heart was pricked and he was like a brute beast before God. The goodness of God brought him back to the sanctuary of God and there he grew in his understanding of God's goodness and he understood that God is always with him. He guides him with his counsel uh, he'll, and afterward you will receive me to glory and, and what he learned from this is that there's nothing on earth that is worth desiring in place of God. He also learned that even as his flesh and his heart fails, that God will be the strength of his heart and his portion forever. Then he concludes, For behold, those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. But for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge that I may tell of all your works. Now, I want to take just a couple of minutes at the, the end here to talk about some lessons that we can all learn from Asaph's very humble confession that he put out there for all of us to see. Some lessons we can learn, some promises we can count on related to God's goodness, and finally, some recommended action for all of us. First of all, lessons. First lesson, God is truly good to his people. This is a foundational truth that we can always count on. It's axiomatic, but you're not going to see it clearly unless your heart is pure and unless you have the eternal perspective that God has revealed to us in his word. Secondly, we learn that those who are pure in heart 
see and experience God's goodness. Like it says in Matthew 5, 8, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Third, your heart is challenged with impurities any time you set your heart on things apart from Him, things in this world. So beware. Beware. Beware of any feelings or thoughts that you have that this, I need this thing, or I need this circumstance, or I need this, I need something in order to be satisfied. All you need is God. All you need is Him, and He has promised that He will meet all your needs, that He will provide all good things for you. And as the Apostle Paul put it, think about it this way. He says, if God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how, listen to this, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all good things? Think about it. What's Paul saying? Paul's just using logic. He's saying, if God did not spare his own son for us, why would we think that he would spare any good thing? If there was one thing that God would say, no, I'm drawing the line here, I'm going to be good to you, but, but here's the line, I'm not going to sacrifice my son. Well, he already did that. There is no line beyond that. So, of course, he'll graciously give us every good thing. The only reason we doubt that is because we desire things apart from God. They may even be things that God wants to give us, but we desire them apart from Him because we fear that if we trust Him, He won't give them to us. He will give you every good thing. Jesus said, I've come that you they might have life and have it abundantly. The path of Jesus is the path of life, abundant life. And every other path, Solomon tells us, is a way that ends in death. Another lesson learned is the key to overcoming impurities of the heart is to enter the sanctuary of God. I think this is just a poetic way to describe repentance. Repentance is not just being really, 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 really sorry. Repentance is just saying, I've been a fool chasing after things that I thought were good. I just need to return to God. That's what repentance is. In fact, many times that it's used in the scripture, it's used in the phrase repentance toward God. It's just turning around, returning to Him, where you put your hope and your trust in Him rather than anything else. And then there's one that is not going to be up on the screen. God's truth is established in the light of eternity. You see, we live in a temporal world, and we don't have the capacity to see it beyond what we experience on a daily basis unless we listen to God and trust in Him. We need that eternal perspective to put it all in perspective. That's why the Apostle Paul said that if there is no resurrection, then we above all people are most to be pitied. 
Why? Because as we follow God, as we trust Him and do things His way, we are doing things that will benefit us for eternity, but not necessarily in the moment. And you may live your whole life missing out on things. You know, in the United States that doesn't happen much. But in other places of the world where, where to be a follower of Christ, you, you have to be looking over your shoulder all the time for somebody who wants to put you to death, you may sacrifice great things in order to, to follow Jesus and, and spend your whole life doing that until somebody finally catches you and puts you to death. And it's all okay. Why? Because of eternity. But if there is no resurrection, if there is no eternal life, Paul says, we of all people are most to be pitied. Why? Because everything is staked upon that truth. Now let's talk about some promises that we can count on related to God's goodness. I want to encourage you to make it a practice of remembering God's promises, memorizing them, writing them down, recording them, just thinking about them, talking about them to other people, um, because it's God's promises that, that changes our whole perspective on everything. First promise, you are continually with God. He's always there. You're never far from Him, even when it feels like you are. He holds your right hand. I think that's just a poetic way of saying that He's not going to let you fall completely away. He's got you. He might let you wander, but ultimately He's going to bring you back into the sanctuary of God where everything is made clear because he loves you and he's promised that he's going to get you where you need to be. He guides you with his counsel. This is why you should always spend time in his word every day. That's where we get the counsel of God. And that's where we're going to get the guidance and the perspective we need. Another promise, afterward God will receive you to glory. Again, the eternal perspective. It's the hope of the gospel, the blessed hope of Jesus' return to take us to be with him forever. And then a final promise, your flesh and your heart may fail, and I might even say your flesh and your heart will fail, but God is the strength of your heart and your portion forever. You don't even have to worry about your own inadequacies. You don't have to worry about the, the weakness of your heart that causes you to fail because God is the strength of your heart and your portion forever. And then finally, some recommended action. God is better than anything else you may desire. We've learned that from this psalm. Asaph has given us a view into his soul and his struggle and his conclusion that God is better than anything else you may desire. So what should you do? Seek him. Seek him. Make it a regular practice to be near God. Psalm 1611 says, You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. So if you want to seek joy, if you want to seek pleasure, seek God. 
because that's where you'll find it. Another recommended action, it is good for you to be near God, so seek Him. Make the Lord God your refuge. In other words, don't make ice cream your refuge or a latte or some mindless Netflix streaming show. Make the Lord God your refuge. And finally, the last thing that Asaph said, I have made the Lord God my refuge that I may tell of all your works. So share with others what you learn about the goodness of God. And I would encourage you to be willing to be as humble as Asaph. Just be honest with people about your struggles and about how God has rescued you in the midst of them. They will find out more about the goodness of God that way than if they look at you and see, wow, he's impressive or she's impressive. They're just going to think you're impressive. But God's, Jesus said his strength is made perfect in our weakness. So let's, let's be honest about our weaknesses and how God rescues us and saves us in the midst of them. Because that's the gospel that the whole world needs to hear. We are not God. He's the only one who is righteous. We instead are prone to sin, prone to rebellion against him, prone to think that we can make life for ourselves. And every way that we might choose, the Bible says, is a way that ends in death. And God has loved us in the midst of that rebellion and has sacrificed his own son who took our guilt, our sin upon himself, took the judgment of God for us so that we could be reconciled to God and be with him for all eternity, receiving all the, the glory and all the benefits of the Son of God, the child of God. Let's go and tell the whole world the truth that God is good. Above all things, God is good. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this psalm. Thank you for moving in Asaph's heart. Uh, not only for him to experientially learn these things in his struggles, but also, Lord, that you humbled him enough that he was willing to write it down for all of us to see. And Lord, I know that this morning uh, there are many here who uh, may be struggling with similar things. Just doubts because they want something that they don't know if you want it for them. Lord, help every one of us to be brought back to where we enter the sanctuary of God and see all your goodness clearly with pure hearts and can just rest and trust in you for all eternity. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.